Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is The Ordinary Doing Extraordinary Things by Pastor Liz Rod. Terry, for praying for me because, you know, um, it's interesting. When I, I was first asked to be ordained, I, I must admit I was pushed. I didn't jump. I've got to tell you. Um, I felt like I was on the edge of a precipice and, and God had his hand right in the middle of my back. I've always felt that I'm more of a reacher. In fact, I've had prophecies over me that I'm a communicator. But I think of it more as a communicator one-on-one. And it's something I love to do. I love people. I love to be with people. But every now and then, God puts me back up on that precipice. And sadly, he's put you here with me today too. So I can only apologise. We're all going to feel that push in the middle of our back and we're all going to jump together. You know, last week, it was interesting. um, And I thank you, Terry, for your wonderful message about peace. We can never, ever... Um, you know, sort of not be grateful for peace. And I know I needed it when I realised that my computer was unable to be started this week. There was not a lot of peace in my heart. But as I opened the book of Philippians last week to turn to the scriptures that, or some of the scriptures you were using, my attention went to the little introduction in the front. And if you'll just indulge me for a moment, it was actually concerning a scripture in Philippians 2. And it spoke about the humility of Christ. And it's something, um, as I said, I always feel greatly humbled by the fact that God has given me that push into ministry. I often think he has a marvellous sense of humour and quite possibly you do too. But, you know, when um, Paul was writing to the the people in Philippi, I should say, he challenged them about being servants just as Christ was. And it says that Christ made nothing of himself and became a man rather than clinging to the rights of his divine nature. And I thought that, I thought, you know, I'm like everybody else. I like to cling to the comfortable. I was very comfortable teaching children because let's face it, they just expect you to know more than them, so it doesn't seem to be, they're not as critical. Might have been of my artwork, but certainly not of what I was saying. I liked the one-on-one. I was happy doing the, the church news. I was happy doing all those that I used to think I was Tony's handbag, you know? I could come along and just come along beside him and take care of all those details, but he was the man in the pulpit until that push came. And I was actually... Uh, this week spending some time after reading that scripture in uh, Philippians 2 uh, my grandson for some time has been nagging and I do mean nagging in the true sense of the word about watching a movie called Hacksaw Ridge and I'm very protective of my grandchildren if it's got anything in it that I think they shouldn't I say no even before the parents do. Okay, it's Jesus in my pocket. But anyway, this particular movie, um, I was very, very guarded about it. But finally he talked his mother into letting him watch it. And so it reminded me of a gentleman um, who also was put in a position where he had to stand up for what he believed 
and he, he had an enormous task that made him very unpopular. It made it, it put him in grave danger. And it sounds very familiar. Despised, he was bullied, he was attacked, he was defiled, he was defamed, and ultimately he came through the fire. But he was a gentleman who was at the heart of this story, uh, and he was a Seventh-day Adventist, which I also thought was rather ironic, seeing we're in that particular building. This gentleman was Desmond Doss. Now, he wasn't much to look at. He was a very slightly built man. He looked like a bit like a cornstalk, if you can get the visual picture on that. He was not a big framed man. And after the um, Japanese attacked at Pearl Harbour, of course, America came into the war with great force and they were very much in the South Pacific. Now, De Desmond Doss was a person who could have avoided military service. There was no need for him to join the military. He was a shipyard worker and, of course, there was an enormous um, amount of work to be done rebuilding the, the boats. And I had the great privilege... Ships, I suppose, not boats. Uh, ships. But I had the great privilege of actually being at Pearl Harbour a few years ago and it is an awesome place to visit and you can feel a presence there, something momentous happened. But this particular gentleman, he joined the armed forces but he decided he wasn't going to carry a rifle. He was only going to carry his faith and a Bible. And, of course, some of the conflicts that he was involved in, and if you'll pardon it, I'm not swearing, but they were the bloodiest of the South Pacific. He served in particular at this place where they nicknamed it Haxall Ridge because it literally was a sheer face. The men had to climb up nets in order to be able to get to the top where the Japanese were well and truly entrenched they had the power and the position to just mow them down. So, of course, battalion after battalion were just mowed down. But this remarkable man, because he wouldn't carry a gun, he was labelled a coward. People in his platoon and his superiors all called him out and they even tried to court-martial him because they said that he wouldn't obey an order. But he wanted to be a medic. He wanted, he said, there's going to be a lot of loss of life. I want to actually save lives. So this brave man, armed with his Bible, his faith and his determination. Now, whether or not you think he was right because he took thou shalt not kill as thou shalt not kill. He had come from a violent um, situation in his own home and perhaps that shaped his particular views. But he went up there with everybody else after proving himself and being allowed to remain in the armed forces. But his um, pl platoon members considered him a liability. <coughs> they thought this man was actually going to, instead of being there to have their back, he was actually probably going to cost lives. Well, anyway, long story short, they, they go up and they go up and they ter terrible carnage. I mean, which is the part I wasn't that keen on Zach seeing, but being a boy, blood and guts sort of a, appeals to him. And I go like this. But, you know, uh, as I was watching it and I saw this man run from Foxhole and Furrow where, where you know, there have been bombs let off, there have been all sorts of bombardments happening, he was actually the one who remained. When they retreated, he remained and he actually would look for wounded men. He would go from wounded man to wounded man, offering them comfort. And single-handedly, now reports change, and this is where Hollywood comes in, etc., etc. But reports say he rescued between 75 
and 100 to 150 men in a single night. Now, the Japanese had started to come out. They were looking and they were bayoneting those who were wounded. So this man literally, he would hear the cry or the whimper. He would comfort that man. He would give them morphine to help them with the pain. And he took them down by ropes around this enormous, enormous sheer cliff face. Now, at first, the people at the bottom were amazed. Where are they coming from? They didn't know because they couldn't determine how many people were up there. They couldn't determine how many had been killed. They didn't know that this man was up there until some of them who could speak, they'd say, how, do, how did you get down? And they said, it was DOS. The man that people despised, the man that everyone said was a liability, only armed with his faith and only armed with his Bible, he rescued all those men. All those men had life because of his brave actions. He was undeterred. I think it had helped too. He did get married at one stage there and I think his wife might have threatened him if she didn't come back. He was going to have a bigger force to be reckoned with than the Japanese. But anyway, that, that's just a, a little preamble and, and it just confirmed to me that, you know, when the, the disciples were called, can you imagine... Can you imagine? I know what it, I felt like when God called me and then kept, you know, giving me that push. But these men, they were ordinary men. This guy was an ordinary man. He had no particular skills. He learnt to be a medic. He was no one, you know, he wasn't a theologian, he wasn't anyone, but he was somebody who just wanted with a desperation to see people saved, to save life. And I now look, you know, sort of at uh, the men that Jesus chose. And he did choose, choose them, I should say, not cheese them. He, they might, that was cheesy. But, you know, I, I turned open um, a book this week and it was John MacArthur's book and it was entitled 12 Ordinary Men. And I thought, you know, it is remarkable. The people that Jesus used... You know, obviously they had to be convinced that he was the saviour. But you know what? In an instant, when he said, come follow me, there was no hesitation. They, they didn't have the hand in the back. So they're one up on me to begin with. You know, his ministry was going to reach a, a really murderous, conspired plot to get rid of him. And these men were all going to be involved in that they were going to become unpopular because they chose to follow him. You know, it, 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 just like the, um, and I was amazed at this too at um, Christmas time when I spoke about the, uh, the, the message of the good news of the birth of Christ being told to the poor shepherds. You know, they were, again, the, the lower echelons of society. They weren't scholars, they weren't theologians, they weren't kings or people who had extraordinary uh, knowledge, but they did have a basic knowledge of the Jewish culture. They did know that there was a promised Messiah coming. You know, they were a bit slow to learn. I, I actually um, look at this, and I know Jesus would have said this kindly, and I'll try and read it in a kind way. But he said to them at one stage, How foolish are you, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? You know, he, he was trying to prepare them that in the three years that they were with him, for what was going to be the inevitable and that he was going to have to face the cross. You know, we see that there were two sets of brothers who were fishermen. You know, 
Where do you go from fishing to ministry? Same place that someone that taught children with special needs is standing in front of you now. You know, I mean, the, obviously James and John were business owners with their father Zebedee. But then we've got Matthew. Now, we're coming back to this, you know, people who are despised. He was a tax collector. No one liked him. No one at all. The Romans despised him. The Jewish people didn't like him, even if you were passing through town. They were called Moshka, and I don't think it was a complimentary title. They, you know, even their money was considered unclean. So Matthew, here he is about to join Jesus, the righteous, the pure, the wonderful, the beautiful, the powerful, and yet here he is, a man who's come up and nobody likes him. You know, they weren't even allowed to testify in court because they were considered to be such bad types. Then we've got Simon the Canite. Now, he's a, 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 a zealot. I, I actually looked at it, this zealots, a religious sect. It sounds like something you should look at under a microscope, doesn't it? But, you know, he wanted to be part of a political group that were going to overthrow the, the Roman government. So all of a, a sudden, he encounters the Prince of Peace. Interesting, isn't it? You know, even becoming a disciple, he had that zealousness, but Jesus saw he could do something with that. We saw other disciples like Thomas, who gets a bad rap for being Thomas the Doubter, Bartholomew or Nathaniel, whichever way you want to go. Possibly they were tradesmen or fishermen too. Then we've got Phil. Is Phil here today? Phil? Yeah. I thought of you with this. The administrative type. John MacArthur calls him a bean counter. So when I give Phil my receipts, he has to toll that up. You know, there's James the Less. He doesn't sound like he's high up on the social ladder. And then, of course, we've got Judas. And Judas, we know, is the betrayer. You know, all of them left their occupations. Some of them had businesses, but they left and they immediately went to follow Jesus. There was something about this man that was just absolutely irresistible, something they had to follow. And, you know, their stories are just amazing. You know, Jesus says to them, do not take any gold or silver or copper in your belts, take no bag for the journey or an extra tunic or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. He tells them, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And here is the part I think that we all need to listen to. And appointed you to go bear fruit. And it's not just fruit. It's fruit that will last. Yeah. So why did Jesus pick such ordinary men? Why did he pick people who were going to be his constant companions for three years? You know, talk about an intensive program. At one stage there, I got sick of being in education and I decided I was going to go and work in a call centre. And I love to tell people I was a call girl. You can take that wherever you like. But, I, you, know, I, you know, I work for a bank. Now, we did three weeks of intensive training. And we do, naturally, you'll be relieved to know you do it on a training system, so the details and everything aren't in there. But for three weeks, I was in information overload. At that stage, I was not particularly computer literate, so just managing the system was horrific, let alone all the details about how to help people with their banking. And it was back then when they did help you with your banking. And um, anyway, the first thing I did when I got out there you know, that heard the first phone call and I thought, here we go, 
Here we go. So what did I do? Log straight into the training system. Couldn't find the person's details because they didn't exist in there. And so, you know, I can only imagine, you know, this three years sounds like a fair while, but when you know nothing, you know nothing about the ministry that you're about to have to, you know, take on and, and go forth into all sorts of unknown without any credentials, without anything, only this bit of intensive training. Can you imagine? I would have been looking for my trainer too. And Jesus, of course, was gone by then. You know, Jesus, when he says, did I not choose you? And yet one of you is the devil and spoke of Judas, the son of Simon of Iscariot. And he, one of them, is going to betray me. He knew. He knew. He knew everything about them. The good, the bad, the ugly the weaknesses, the strengths. He knew the qualities within him that he could use, but he also knew the things that they were going to have to work on, the things that were going to um, be awkward. You know, he knew all the, their quirky um, personalities. And I think actually when I was researching this and just looking across, I think they were pretty much the spectrum of mankind. Yeah. just looking at all the different things, the things they had to overcome. You know, there was no securities checks, there was no entrance exam, but all came willing and they came immediately without an excuse or hesitation. As I said, I wish I had been quite so eager for the push. But they were personally selected, these ordinary men, and they were going to carry on the ministry of Jesus long after the resurrection. They were going to turn the known world upside down. And they were, you know, as I said, they were not upper class. They weren't Pharisees. They weren't theologians. I think Jesus was glad of that. But they were men who were going to be faithful, committed and teachable. They would learn by their mistakes and their shortcomings. Don't we all do that? But, and they were going to recognise the sovereignty of Jesus very quickly. You know, it was interesting as I was looking up what disciple means. You know, so often we go straight to what we think is the literal meaning, and I'm as guilty of that as anybody. But actually what I found was it means a learner. A learner. In Latin, it's disciples. Now, let me get my pronunciation. And in Greek, it's mathaitis which I probably still got wrong. And it means that it's a mental effort to think something through, Strong's tells us, Strong's concordance. And then it says, it's a thought accompanied by an endeavour. So it wasn't just learning for learning's sake. They weren't just students. I want to make that very clear. They were people who literally sat at the feet of Jesus. It says they submit to the teacher, one who accepts and assists in the spreading of doctrines of another, a convinced adherent of a school, of an individually, and they were ultimately, did I upset you, Robert? <laughs> ultimately, to become the sent out ones. There was no plan B. This was an unstoppable plan of God that these men were chosen and they were going out. In Mark 3, uh, verse 14, it says, And he appointed the twelve, who he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And so it's the with him that I really want to talk to you with all the preamble out of the way. And you know what? They were with him everywhere he went. You know, we sang about the, the water being turned into wine. We sang about the blind man this morning being healed. There were so many things 
that they saw. These men were eyewitnesses. You know, so often when news travelled from place to place, I'm sure that it was enhanced, I'm sure there were bits left out. You know, being with him actually brought fruit of its own. You know, there was no instruction manual. Jesus was it. And the fruit of being with him, he sanctified their inner beings because they were just like you and I. They had all these little issues that we work through. And actually, even this morning, I was saying to God, take me out of this, take me out of the equation. <coughs> so if I get um, raptured or whatever, you'll know what happened. He's taking me out of the equation. You know, he formed godly character in them and he made them capable of being his ambassadors on the earth. But only, you know, it's interesting. They say the only people you really know well are the people you live with. Well, these guys got to live with Jesus. They were with him in the fields. They were with him at the beach, at the seashore. They were with him everywhere. And ultimately, they were with him in that upper room and the night that the Passover was celebrated and he instituted the Lord's Supper. He opened their spiritual eyes and he equipped them to teach the gospel and he gave them the authority to set people free, to break those chains. I was so grateful for the song choice today. Yes. You know, we as a church, we're not designed to be some sort of holy club. You know, we might um, like to think we're, we're gathering spiritual authority as we draw closer to Jesus, but it has a responsibility and the disciples found that and it comes at a cost. He knew the character of each man and what he was training them to do was to start to reflect his character from being with him. It was a little bit like, what is it they when it soaks through the membrane? Somebody help me here. Osmosis. Ah, yes, osmosis. It was like that. As they spent time with Jesus, they couldn't be not affected by who he was. You know, we see this later on with Paul, and it's always interested me because I like to look things up. I'm a bit of a nut that way, which is why not having my computer was driving me nuts. But, you know, with Paul, even when his name was changed to Paul, it means small, it means lesser. You know, this man who'd been a mighty, mighty Pharisee, Pharisee of Pharisees, he really had to be shrunk a bit before he could be of use. You know, to be new wineskin material, to be feed my sheep people. Jesus is going to change us like he changed the disciples. And I'd just like to bring your attention to John, actually. When I read John, you know, and uh, it's the fourth book of the gospel, as you know. And John refers to himself several times in it, five in fact, I think. Yes, five. He makes reference of an unnamed disciple, but there, it's widely thought that he's referring to himself, even though, uh, because he's accredited with the writing of this gospel, as the beloved disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, did he have a, um, a bit of a, a pride problem? I don't know. Was he setting himself up here? Let's have a look. You know, he... Um, he recognised the signs of Jesus' identity because he was an eyewitness. He saw all these things. He was the youngest of the group. 
And he later on, as we know, theologians and historians attribute the writing of the, the book of Revelation. They give him the, uh, the, the uh, honour of being that. This man was born around the fishing area and he was the only one of the disciples not to be martyred, which I also find interesting. It wasn't from lack of trying. Reports tell us that they threw him in a pot of boiling oil and he came out unscathed. I've never had that experience. Hot oil has always burnt me, so I'm not as holy as John. You know, but Peter, James and John were part of Jesus' inner circle. It's not to say he had favourites, but there was something about these men. Possibly they sort of got it, maybe a bit earlier. Possibly they were going to be, you know, when you look at a group of children, um, you see who the leaders are going to be. You see the ones that need to be pulled down a peg. You see the ones who have got something in them that's the grit that they need. So whatever Jesus saw in them. You know, we see this man, you know, he he is reputed to possibly be a cousin of Jesus. Um, his mother Salome is um, being attributed by some sources as being a sister of Mary or half-sister of Mary. You know, but John had problems. And I was so glad to find this out. You know, you, it sounds a bit mean, doesn't it? But somehow I thought this guy, if Jesus loved him, he must have had it all right. It's always a relief when you find out you're not the only one that's got some, some work to be done. You know, he had a temper. He and his um, brother James were called the sons of thunder. And I've got to tell you, I practised and practised this word, and I'm going to get it wrong because I always do. They were beginners. There you go. <laughs> Do you like that? Sons of Thunder. We'll go with that. You know, a couple of instances we read where, you know, uh, if, for instance, in, in Luke 9, 54 and Mark 3, we read accounts where these two guys wanted to bring down fire from heaven. You know, Jesus is focused on Jerusalem. I'm heading back to Jerusalem, you know, to fulfil my mission. And they go through a, a Samaritan town. Now, everybody knows they're not friends, you know. As Tony says to my cat, don't think we're friends. So, you know, it, it's like that. So, of course, they weren't really willing to give, you know, what Jesus needed there. So he just wanted to move on, but not the sons of thunder. Now, this is coming to the conclusion of their time with Jesus too. They wanted to bring down the fire from heaven and wipe out these Samaritans. Now, if you skip forward to Acts 8, it's rather interesting that John is sent out to this same area at, at, to speak to new believers. Can you imagine if he had been able to call down the fire of heaven and exterminate these guys? They were the very people that were filling the new churches in Samaria. So he would have, you know, fried his own congregation, so to speak. So I just I love I love the humour in that, you know. Um, James and John were both inclined to mouth off a bit. They found a man that was casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they were affronted. You know, we are the exclusive twelve, not them, not them. So they come to Jesus because, in their opinion, this man was operating using their master's name, but without a license. But, you know, Jesus rebukes them. He's still training them right until, you know, he's gone. He, he just is continually taking every moment to train them up. And he says, you know, the good news isn't copyright. This is going to be 
the common property of everyone who will listen. And so he had to just instruct them in that moment. Pride. Oh, here's a big one. You know, who is the greatest? Now, this not only comes up in, in John and James, of course, though they do have a private moment, and don't they get the back up of the other ten disciples when they do this? You know, I want to sit on your right, I want to sit on your left. You know, when you come into your kingdom, a bit cheeky, weren't they, really? But, you know, they came and they asked the question. And, of course, you know, Jesus is saying to them, but can you go through the baptism I'm about to? Can you drink that bitter cup of suffering? They had no idea, no idea. No matter how much he talked to them, they really didn't know what lay up ahead. You know, we, we see in Luke 22. Now, this one amazes me, you know. Here we have, you know, the time where the Lord's Supper is being instituted. You know, uh, some of the Gospels, including John, share about how Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And they're having a barney. It says, they put it a little more elegantly, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he goes on to tell them that the kings of Gentiles exercise lordship and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And he goes on to tell them in the next verse, you are those who stayed with me in my trials and I assign you. You know, they're appointed all the time to be with him and to go on to greater things. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, I think in that moment, Jesus, you know, he, I, I love the way he takes teachable moments. And those of us who have been parents and or are now grandparents too, there are so many teachable moments, you know, and Jesus was so amazing. You know, he, he just, he blessed them with his graciousness. He blessed them by patiently just leading them all the time towards becoming more like him. And, of course, we know he had the servant heart. You know, washing their feet was more than just an exercise. I mean, they did would have had dirty feet, let's face it. But, you know, it was an exercise in purification too because these men were about to be entrusted with the, greatest, the Great Commission. They were about to go out to be his representatives, to be part of him. And so, you know, they, because they were to carry that on, you know, we see Peter who immediately goes, oh, you can't, you can't wash my feet. Oh, oh, no, that's not right. You know, you're the master. But, you know, Jesus said to him, you will understand. And I think as time went on, they did indeed understand. Uh, there's good news and bad news. I mean, some of it is that we don't have to be perfect to do God's work. But the other part is you're going to be perfected. Not made perfect, but we're going to be perfected. Yeah. You know, we must be teachable learners. And learners who then want to process what we're being taught and to apply it to our own lives so that we can actually represent God well. We are an ongoing work in the potter's hands. Do you ever feel like you're being 
a bit. Yeah. You know, we're going to undergo some serious renovations. And I know what it's like to undergo serious renovations in a house. There's some remodelling that's going to be done. And we, are going, we don't have the opportunity to be with Jesus and have the intensive training that they did. But we do have the word. We have that great cloud of witnesses that is spoken about in the book of Hebrews. You know, even Isaiah, and I'm glad you brought that up. As I said, I was so blessed by so many things this morning because, you know, I always say to God, am I on the right track? But even Isaiah, who was going to share some of the most incredible truths 600 years before they would happen with Jesus coming, he had a time of humbling. You know, David, the shepherd boy, do you think he ever thought he was going to be king of Israel? I look at Charles Spurgeon. He was converted through the pe- preaching of the gospel by a lay preacher. That means somebody who's not actually given the title of pastor, just somebody who had that one conversation probably with him and spoke, spoke the gospel into his life. And Charles Spurgeon went on to inspire many of us. Martin Luther became convicted of his sin because he heard the message of grace through the Psalms and the Book of Romans. You know, these are amazing people. who Some of them were already considered great, but it was only when they had that encounter with the living God and the truth of the gospel. It's the same gospel that saved you and I. You know, God takes nobodies and he makes us into somebodies in his kingdom. He gives us his grace, he gives us his patience, and he takes the ordinary out of us to do extraordinary things. Three years ago, I was journaling, and um, if it wasn't such a laborious task to bring all my big... Because I have big books to journaling. And, you know, three years in a row, I'd be sitting there and I'd be really, you know, reading the Word of God and I'd be taking the daily devotion, what have you, and God kept saying to me, I'm going to take my people, I'm going to shake my people, I'm going to awaken my people, and I'm going to remake my people. That's us. He's not talking about out there. He's talking about us, and I believe that there is a real stirring that is happening, and it's a willingness because we want to learn, we're hungry, we're wanting to follow Jesus, we're wanting to know him, to be with him. You know, John's early days as a disciple were characterised by zeal and passion and ambition, sometimes acting rashly and recklessly, even impetuously and aggressively. But in spite of all his youthfulness, being a young person in Christ, he matured well under the guidance of the shepherd. He begins to understand the heart of Jesus and humility and servanthood start to be introduced into his vocabulary. His rash request for special honour gives way to compassion and to humility that was going to characterise his ministry in later life. He has courage and boldness, but tempered with humility because the self-confidence was only going to end up as being boastfulness and an attitude of exclusiveness, which we saw when those men were casting out demons. You know, we see reliable historical references that tell us that our friend may well have been the disciple that uh, Jesus loved. And we're told that he wrote the book of John. We see later on, because of his writing style, the three epistles that bear his name. And then later on, when he was exiled by Dominican 
to go and be on the island of Patmos. He wasn't there for a lovely retreat, ladies, like we had. You know, it was actually, Patmos means killing place. It was sort of like an ancient Alcatraz where you were sent there if you were considered to be a threat to the, the reigning uh, political structure. But it was there, it was there that John was given the visions and we have the book of Revelation, which complicates our life no end, doesn't it, the book of Revelation? But one day we'll understand. So John's got a legacy. And I think the legacy is not just about his, his, what he wrote. It's not just about his earthly commission by Jesus. But his legacy is that I think we are all now, if we're willing, to be the disciples that Jesus loves. You know, one of the greatest truths and the, probably the scripture that we see written most is John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Well, you and I, at the moment, are part of the world. But of course, when Jesus came into our life, when he died on that cross, when we believed and we received the gift of eternal life, we start to become really those people that were loved while we were sinners and now we're beloved disciples. I think that's pretty awesome. You know, John was fueled with a passion and a concern for his sheep. He got upset when he thought there were false teachers. He got upset when he thought Jesus wasn't being regarded as he should. And we need, not that Jesus needs us to defend him, but we need to stand up for who he is. You know, Jesus reflected God's own glory in human flesh. We see all the miracles. John records all the I am's of Jesus. How many times, I don't know about you, but how many times do you quote that to yourself or to other people? You know, I am, I am the light of the world. You know, when you're in a dark place, isn't it good that the person who's with you is the light of the world? He exhorts us, you know, to, um, to face up to some of the challenges. You know, we've always got to balance any passion we have for the Lord with love. Otherwise, we become harsh like the Pharisees were. We can be judgmental and we can be very prone to lacking the discernment that we should have. It must be tempered and balanced with love. You know, we have to be careful not to be gushingly sentimental about when we're telling the truth because there, there's some tough stuff in there. There's some hard sayings in there that we've got to be true to. But we do have to speak the truth in love. You know, we have to have a confidence and a boldness tempered with compassion and grace like John was taught. And the difference between having confidence in Christ and self-confidence is eons apart. You know, there's a consistent theme in the book of John about the good shepherd. And I think that, you know, John early in the piece was taught that Jesus was a leader who was worth following. It wasn't about Christ's position because, let's face it, he threw all that away momentarily to come to earth. He humbled himself to be a man so he could speak into the lives of men. He was, you know, he was always very careful about um, guarding and caring for Christ's flock and he was ready to lay his life down but it wasn't required of him because God had things for him to do. Faithfulness is a characteristic of John's service. You know, I, I often think, you know, when everybody else disappeared and John had the courage to go and stand with Mary at the cross, it's pretty dangerous really, wasn't it? Maybe, maybe that was part of his recklessness that was a good thing. But, you know, to be there. And so, of course, we see Jesus rewarding that faithfulness by entrusting Mary into his care. You know, you and I had the same call 
that the disciples have been given. And that's to come and to follow me. But more than that, we need to be constantly willing to learn. Learning every day. You know, I remember Pastor Peter many years said, leaders are readers. And um, fortunately for me, I am a reader, so I don't know whether I wanted to be a leader, but anyway, that's it. Charles Swindle, who I, I really enjoy listening to, he said, the disciple of Christ has a growing drive to obey, regardless of the consequences, the sacrifices or the cost. You know, while we remain teachable, while we remain faithful, while we're eager, our service will reflect the fruit of the Spirit. Palaces and pyramids are reared by the laying of one brick or block at a time, and the kingdom of Christ is enlarged by individual conversations. So you might never, ever do anything except just speak to one person at a time. But you know what? It doesn't matter. If that's what you've been assigned to do, if that's your role of discipleship, relish it, love it, and be obedient. You know, I just think that we can learn so much from these ordinary men. And I look now at John, and I, I don't think he was just um, trying to big note himself, but I think he wanted each and every one of us to know that we are called. You wouldn't be here today. You would not be here today. And I just want to finish, if I may, if anyone feels that they would like prayer. Um, John Piper wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. Now, I probably would have been happy floating around. I loved working with my special needs kids and doing what I did. I probably would have been very happy to remain doing what I was doing. But, you know, God had other plans. And as much as they might not have been the plans that I thought that I wanted to, um, the path I wanted to follow, I'm so glad that he did. You know, I, I stand up here and I still think I'm more of a reacher than a preacher. But at the same time, I'm so grateful that I was called. I'm so grateful that I'm willing to learn. And I know all of you are because you wouldn't be here otherwise. So let's just go on the journey together and let's learn and let's be part of building the kingdom of God, part of building into people's lives so that there is that fruit, that fruit that will... Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.